Welcome back to A Fine Time for Healing, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. Today we have with us Johnny Serpilla, who um, in the past was a professional executive um, of this the biggest camping um, RV company in the world called Camping World. Uh, he was the president and chief in development of business. He's always lived in the leadership role. He served on many boards, personal and public and private. Um, and today we're going to be discussing his book, Life is Hard, But I'll Be Okay. Love that title. Welcome, Johnny. So good to have you. Thank you so much, Randy. I appreciate you and uh, especially you taking the time to read the book before our talk. So thank you. You're welcome. It's, um, yeah. That's what makes me different than other show hosts because I want I want to talk about you. I want to talk about what's important to you. So share with us a little more about your bio, who you are, um, and what your goals are. You know, with the work that you do. <clears throat> foremost, I'm a husband and father. So you know, as as you saw from the book, um, I've always defined my success in life on the family unit and. Um, as we can talk about that struggle for us to create that family unit. So for me, it starts there. And then everything else is kind of multiple blessings that are offshoots of that. I've had an amazing career in business that I'm, I'm super proud of the people that I've been impacted by and learned from and got to work beside. And uh, I chose at the age of 50 to uh, step aside from corporate America and focus on things that are passionate to me and, and on my heart. Leadership is at the top of that. Um, and, you know, really working and understanding that when you call yourself a leader, or if you have the title of manager or VP or president or director, whatever that might be, or supervisor, that it's really our jobs to come to work every day to make the people around us successful. And so when that's heavy on your heart and that's what you want to do, to make other people successful, your career, their career, and ultimately the company just perform at levels that we could maybe never even imagine. So I thought, you know, at 50 years old, um, I, I was not able to choose my career because I went into a family business uh, in the RV industry. So I thought, I think I'm old enough now to choose what I want to do. And what I wanted to do was impact others and help them in their journey um, in their lifetime. That's just, it's wonderful. And it's wonderful that you were able to do that. You know, I find that careers these days are not forever. You know, we, we may be in them for a while, but that may not be our, our lifetime career and we can change. And I think more and more people are embracing what's in their heart now uh, and going in that direction. Because I, you know, I just think that you can burn out in some of these uh, careers and jobs that really don't um, suit, fit who you are and what your goals are. So it's wonderful that you're in this space now. Um, your story is tragic and beautiful and it has a happy ending and it's wonderful. And I think the message here, uh, well, first of all, the message is hope. The message is that no matter how many 
pitfalls and how things can go the wrong way, it doesn't mean that that's the way things will end up. And um, my takeaway of the book in general is that things happen when they're supposed to, not necessarily when we want them to. And it's important that we understand that because otherwise we can get disappointed and lose hope in something that's potentially um, coming for us. So you can start to tell us your story about um, this heartbreak. And before you actually say it, I want, to know, I want you to understand, I can relate to a segment of what you went through, not all of it, but my daughter has poly, um, poly over, poly. Polycystic ovarian disease? Yes. <clears throat> so she was unable to get pregnant. She went through four rounds of in vitro. She, and I remember what it took for her. And I remember the heartbreak every time that, you know, the transfer didn't work. And um, it, it was just such an up and down. It was so hard. She now has an eight month old baby boy um, who's, you know, the apple of our eye. So eventually it worked out when it was supposed to. So tell us your story. So the story is, as the subtitle of my book, it's the power of hope. It's emerging through pain and it's learning to live with gratitude. And if I would have known that subtitle at the beginning of the journey, I would have probably fared much better uh, because I would have understood that I needed to learn to live with gratitude, maybe even a little bit sooner. But I'm, I'm proud to say that for both my wife and for me that um, we did feel that gratitude um, probably as quickly as we could have through the darkness. And so, you know, for us, we were really at a, at a point where we felt um, just the, the hope for the future was huge. Um, and there is power in hope, as, as I write about. But we started, you know, with amazing careers. Um, both of us got a quick start in our careers. And I was so proud of my wife for uh, the career that she had. And uh, financially, she was even doing better than me. And and was just so proud of her. It was incredible what she was doing. And I was um, on the path as well. And, and things were going great. So professionally, we appeared to everyone else as that couple that was so career focused that, you know, family was not a priority to us. And having children was not going to be um, potentially in our destiny at all. And so, you know, we knew that wasn't the case. And, and when we decided to uh, start having a family, which we thought would be incredibly simple to do uh, because we're both hard workers and uh, you set a goal and you achieve it. And then you set the next goal and the next goal and you just achieve and you keep moving forward. We were blessed in, in our lives with loving and supportive parents. So we don't have that hard knock story that we had to, you know, pull up from our bootstraps and, and change um, from the darkness that we lived in before, because really we had charm lives up to that point. I think that's an important point to acknowledge because I have incredible respect uh, for people who not only were in our position, but moved upwards versus downward, but even more respect than for the people who came from far less guidance and love and stability than we came from. Because I saw, Randy, how our world was rocked, even on the solid foundation that we were on. 
solid marriage, solid finances, solid family surrounding us, faith, values, all the things that you would need, the ingredients for a successful life were in place until all of our hopes and dreams were shattered. And so, you know, it leads me to tell a little bit of the story where much like your daughter, um, but without any medical challenges, uh, when we decided to start having children, uh, we simply couldn't. Um, month after month after month, um, and then soon to be year after year, uh, it was not happening. And, um, you know, it's, I look back and laugh uh, at myself for the first month being shocked when it didn't work. Like, this is impossible. You know, we did everything right. We did it often. And uh, it was a fantastic week. So how do you not have the rewards out of that um, with the blessing of a pregnancy? And, you know, I I'm a man with anxiety. I've always had it. Um, probably in my 20s, um, I wasn't as clear that it was anxiety. It was maybe more people would say, well, I think you have depression. It was like, mm, I don't feel sad. I just I really worry about a lot of stuff. This is one thing that I worried about. Worried about this since I was a child, actually, because I never um, saw myself as a biological father. Couldn't have, couldn't get my head my head around that. I always saw myself as a dad, but really couldn't comprehend really what that might look like um, from a biological perspective. And so we went on in our journey after you know the first year of trying and the second year with artificial insemination, and then entering into the third year um, and going into the in vitro path, much like your daughter. And uh, we became pregnant and very pregnant. We became pregnant with triplets. And uh, we were the, the happiest people in that infertility program. While they cautioned us against um, you know, having multiples and, and having three you know, really wasn't um, the ideal, matter of fact, the doctor had a ultrasound picture uh, on his bulletin board behind him as we sat in his office. And he said, I have this up here to show um, that with triplets, that it's not what we're going for here. And we kind of joked and said, oh my gosh, it would be like winning the lottery. I've always wanted multiples. Thinking twins was as big as I could dream. Um, having three would be even better. And really, um, it was in, in every way possible. Did they transfer three embryos? No, back then uh, they transferred five. Oh, okay. So they yeah, were so, isolating them. Okay. Yeah, so it's very different to see what today. Okay. Yeah, where couples are putting in one, maybe two. Um, back in our time in the mid-90s, uh, five was a standard. And so wow. and the likelihood for getting pregnant, um, you know, the percentage was incredibly low. So, you know, it was, it was, and we didn't even, I mean, they said, you know, we'd normally put in five. Okay, let's go. And, um, you know, our 20% chance of getting pregnant. Um, okay. And so we, you know, we're blessed with um, a good pregnancy. Um, Easier for me than my wife because she was incredibly sick for the first trimester and lost 15 pounds because um, of you know being so so sick. Second trimester uh, really went beautifully. Um, she was gaining weight. The babies were growing on pace. 
for a single pregnancy baby. And so all of our kids were a little on the larger size than most multiples would be. And then as the pregnancy progressed, um, unfortunately, um, our two sons and our daughter, Nicholas, Mary, and Peter were born prematurely and uh, they lived a short time and, and passed away in our arms. And so for us, um, the roller coaster of emotions and the conviction of the understanding that we had that when we became pregnant, that this was the reason why it took three years. Our plan was to be parents of triplets. And what God had in store for us was more than we could have imagined. And so we clearly understood, we accepted it. We never had the anxiety or the panic of how are we going to deal with this? This is too much. Um, you know, all of those thoughts, we didn't have them. And so the time that they were alive um, is really where the gratitude started um, because we were the happiest people in that hospital. We were a family of five. We were connected. We were holding our two sons and our daughter and just marveling at their beauty and um, the, the hope that we had for the future. And so from that, you know, things turned dark after our youngest son, Peter, died. And we really took some time to just be with them for hours. And it wasn't until the nursing, uh, one of the top nurses came in and, and said, you know, which funeral parlor will you be using that our lives changed? They really didn't feel to have changed prior to that because we were a family of five. Oh my goodness. And... At that point in time, reality started to sink in and, and we knew that we had a battle ahead of us. And I know that um, you've carried those children in your heart and in your head as if they have been part of your family all these years. So you consider them as part of your family and absolutely they were. These were beautiful babies. Um, and you've kept their memories alive, which is really a beautiful thing. I don't know how, um, I cannot even begin to imagine what it'd be, be like to hold, have a baby die in my arms. And then you had three. So that is so heartbreaking. And I would imagine that it takes quite a while to come back from that, to go through the grieving and um, come to acceptance and really to a point where you're willing to try again. So what happened after that? So, you know, we went through the funeral process, of course, and, um, you know, as <clears throat> we said goodbye to them, we, we promised them, um, when, when they left us at the, uh, at the hospital to go to the funeral parlor, um, you know, promised them that, um, their lives will not be forgotten. I think any of us as parents, um, especially a parent that has lost a child, wants our children's lives to be one of significance and meaning mm -hmm. in whatever way that that manifests through them, whether it's through the arts or athletics or academics or charitable work or their, their beautiful spirit, whatever it is, we want that to be significant and meaningful. 
others. Mm-hmm. When a life is cut short, I think at times that can take on a magnitude that we don't really have the, the, the fullness of mind and heart and, and thought to get our hands around that. How do we do this? How do we make their lives significant when only you know our immediate family and closest friends met them? And so that became the journey for the funeral to show the significance that they were in our lives. Um, I'm very comfortable public speaking, do a lot of public speaking, but I was not able at that time to do the eulogy. And my dad did the eulogy at the funeral. And he really set the stage for people to understand. And and when I think back, um, you know, of a grandparent, I mean, he was grieving as he and my mom said often, they were grieving for us as their children, my wife and and me, and then grieving their grandchildren. They had a double uh, carry that they had there, much like Randy, that you were feeling in the disappointment for your daughter, that you know she was carrying it alone for her um, and and her partner, and you had it, you know, um, magnified. Right. You were feeling it as a mother, and then you were feeling it for them as well. Absolutely. And so my dad had that you know, with two generations below him and my mom. And and they really taught us, um, they set the standard for Nicholas, Mary, and Peter being their grandchildren um, and in addition to the five that they currently had. So that was a, a part of the grieving process began with the funeral and honoring their lives in a way that some people even questioned, you know, for an infant, do you have a funeral? Now, it was never a question to us. Um, I, I don't know how you, yeah, I don't know how you quietly uh, disregard their life, but that there were some interesting questions that people had uh, regarding that. Um, some as bold as, why did you feel the need to have a funeral? Um, and so, from there, we realized that the grieving process is going to be a little different because people saw this in some regards as something that we maybe should get over quicker because as they would say in trying to, and well-intentioned, but trying to make us feel better, you know, at least you didn't get to really know them, right? And oh so you gosh. hear a comment like that and, and you think, well, who doesn't really want to get to know their child? Or, you know, I have a dear friend who lost her son at nine. And, you know, we talk about the nine years that she had with him and the blessing and the joy and the memories. And she wouldn't trade it for anything. And he died suddenly in his sleep. Um, it was a crazy situation. But she has so many amazing memories to hold on to that literally lift her daily. And she and I talk about that. And we talk about a different side of grieving when you rest in gratitude. So we started um, that journey of grieving uh, with a commitment to each other as a couple. We're not going to stray from each other. Mm-hmm. And there was something really beautiful. One of the grateful uh, points that happened early on is that once you see your partner 
hurting and Susan was struggling so badly, as was I. From there, what could you possibly argue about? What What is of significance and meaning that you would disrespect each other or not be kind? And so although we had a really solid marriage in the first you know, three years of our marriage, it, it just changed it for the better from that point forward. Right. So that was something that was really incredible. And then it was the challenge every day of getting out of bed, right? You start there, like, how do we do this? How do other things become important to me? How do our careers now matter as much as they mattered before? And the reality is life does go on. And I remember thinking that in the limousine driving to the um, church, watching everyone else driving by and thinking, this is so interesting. Like, it's just another work day for all those people in those cars, all those businesses that were open. Mm -hmm. It's just another day at the office or in the store or in the hospital, right? It's just another day. And yet it was such a defining day for us. And that was my first hint that life needs to go on. Mm. And now we had to figure out how we were going to do that. That's a hard concept to grasp. And it takes people different amounts of time to get to that point. <clears throat> Some people feel very guilty for going on with their life um, because they feel like it represents it, it, it's it's a statement that they didn't care or that this did not impact them um, so it takes people different amounts of time to come to that what do you think helped you to come to that realization and there's so much more to this story that we're going to tell but at that point like what did you say to yourself so you know we started um spending a lot of time at the cemetery um, where we just felt close to them. We were six feet apart, laying on the ground. Um, you know, just being close to them felt great. And until we probably recognized that we were spending too much time there. And so we'd make these commitments to have less time there. And then, you know, we'd agree on that. And I, on my way home from work, say, I just have to stop. You know, I'm going to do it just one more time this week. And then, you know, I get there and Susan's already there. And so we kind of look at each other like, yeah, you can't hold to this promise either. And so, you know, we started by, you know, setting goals of how we would be at the cemetery less, then setting goals for some periods in the time of the day where we would just let it go. And, and other times where we would hold it together because we were heading back to work, uh, setting goals for how things were going to have to change in our lives. Um, me professionally, that's a whole leadership path that I could go into that I knew culture of my company that I own had to change because there were things that I was allowing to happen that did not put employees in the right mindset to go home to their families where they're dealing with their struggles in the best mindset. So it changed me as a leader. And then, you know, we started to deal with the idea of laughter again and, and, and what that could feel like um, in terms of being healthy as opposed to feeling guilty for it. Because it, initially it feels very unnatural. Because, you know, I 
there, there's the, the, the thought of, um, or the, the term of functioning alcoholic, meaning somebody is, you know, addicted to alcohol, but they're functioning well, they're doing their job all day long. Um, they might, whatever that might be, but then they are functioning through that. And then they have their periods of, of turning to the, um, abuse. And for us, I felt like a functioning depressant, um, th that I was incredibly depressed. I was incredibly anxious, but I was getting the tasks done every day. I was performing my job and I was loving my wife, but that was our resting place. So then we said, we got to move up from there. And we started setting goals in therapy that rested in gratitude. So you did have therapy? Yes, okay. we were in therapy right away. And matter of fact, Dr. Fordyce, um, Barb, as she became to, uh, known to us because we got so close, she wrote the afterword to my book. And uh, she and I do a lot of public speaking today and have, have formed an incredibly dear friendship. So I want to point out to my listeners, because you're probably noticing in the background that Johnny has a family of five. And um, we're going to get to how that came about. But in between, there was more heartbreak, right? Can you just sort of go through a little bit, like what happened and then what happened and what happened? There was so much that was testing your, um, your gratitude and your hope and, you know, your faith. And, and so thank you for asking that, Randy. Before I answer that, I want to say to the listeners that if at looking back, um, would my wife and I say that we could withstand more pain and heartache after Nicholas, Mary, and Peter died? The answer was clearly no. Um, we, as, as I look back, I think it's remarkable what we were able to push through almost so naive at times, and that was a blessing, to think that the next turn around the next corner was where our happiness was. And I say that because in the darkest times, we can't lose sight of hope. And I think that's what Susan and I never did. We never lost sight of hope. Through every punch in the face that kept coming, um, somehow we felt that there was blessings there that had yet to be discovered. And so uh, we did decide to go back to in vitro uh, because we had frozen embryos that um, it made the process much simpler um, medically. And so we went back to that process and uh, the next cycle, um, it did not produce a pregnancy, which we were shocked because we were so successful the first round. And then the third cycle, uh, again, using frozen embryos, uh, it produced twins. And so we were elated again and thought, okay, this is more manageable. There's a big difference between carrying two babies and three babies. Um, as the doctor said to us, more than just one more baby. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, unfortunately there, we, we miscarried them about, you know, three, four weeks apart in the first trimester. And you know, we ended in miscarriage. Um, the first that we thought we miscarried both get to the hospital and still have a heartbeat and a, a good viable pregnancy of one of them. So we're like, okay, gratitude, be thankful. Um, it was two, now it's one. And this will be even better for us um, to, you know, to be successful. And then 
um, randomly at 12 weeks, we, we lost that baby's heartbeat. And so as insensitive as men can be at times, I fell into that that day where leaving the hospital after the DNC procedure, I told my wife, it's time for a new path and we're going to adopt. And she was not on board with that. She was still determined um, to carry a child. And um, I called an adoption agency that day just because I needed to give my wife relief. And then we started on our adoption path. Uh, that was incredibly difficult as well. Right, exactly. So um, you were adopting, you, you were given the opportunity to adopt um, two babies, I think from, was it Paraguay? Yes. Paraguay. Yes. And so there for these babies. And then you were met with incredible adversity. That's right. We, <laughs> we got to find out um, after paying in full for the adoptions prior to getting there. Um, and there's in the book, so many more stories and layers to this, but we're, right, we're certainly covering the, the higher level. Um, it turns out there weren't twin girls that it was, it was a scam and, um, they weren't newborns, um, either. And, um, but we were there and just felt we're here for a reason. And, um, it, it turned out that they were able to produce, um, two more babies born three days apart that were newborns that we were thrilled with a boy and a girl and uh, we named them Jake and Gracie and we took care of them for about three weeks um, and we had them with us and they slept in our suitcases. Um, we, we had, you know, no cribs. We had uh, none of that, but we did bring diapers and formula with us uh, for the twins that we were planning to adopt. So we thought, okay, here's our family. We're set. And, um, and those didn't come to be, and we had challenges uh, with the Paraguayan government um, trying to get them out of the country and uh, tried for 14 months. And you had already attached to them because you'd been with them for three weeks. These were going That's to be right. your babies. That's right. <laughs> um, they absolutely were. And so we just, we came home to take care of our careers for a bit. We rented an apartment to go back there for four to six months. And um, we were never able to make it back uh, because of some challenges that my wife had medically um, that, that led to an emergency surgery with all kinds of complications. And then she was not cleared to leave the country. Um, but the blessing there came um, the week that she got out of the hospital, uh, the day before Thanksgiving. Um, that's when our son Bo was born the day after Thanksgiving. And so um, adoption did work for us um, after Bo was the fifth baby uh, that we tried to adopt. And uh, he was American and, and then that one did go very smoothly. Wow, and he's on the far right or behind you, yes. the far left. Yes. Okay. So that's, that's, okay, all right, awesome. So that's a happy ending. Um, your wife had a lot of medical complications from <clears throat> going through these births, she had a, her, her uterus was torn or, or not capable of the elasticity that it needed to carry more babies. However, <laughs> she did, right? And how did this come about? <clears throat> you know, we did a surgery to um, 
repair the tear, you're correct, in, in Susan's uterus that happened as a result of the DNC. And um, her uterus was um, basically fused together with only 20% of it available. And um, the, the surgery was not successful. And so the doctor said that we would uh, never be able to carry a baby and um, should not continue with in vitro. And really at that point, you know, Bo was one. Um, we, we were so elated with him. He's such an incredible baby and an incredible human today that we, we were set and we understood our path was different than what we thought it would be, but we were okay with it. And uh, we were in the process of adopting again, um, a, uh, actually a sibling of his, and then that fell through. And when we came home from uh, picking up that baby that didn't happen, um, my wife um, discovered, uh, we discovered that she was pregnant and about three months pregnant. And so, you know, the doctor telling us that she could never carry a baby, could never get pregnant, and it would be life-threatening for her um, if she got pregnant, uh, we now found ourselves, you know, 10 weeks pregnant with a baby that we thought, how is this going to work? What, how can this happen? And how did it happen? Uh, we know how it happened, but how did it it's medically a miracle. It was a miracle. Yeah, and truly a miracle. And then all kind of fear that happened from there because she can't grow this baby. So now what do we do knowing that her life is at risk? And she was placed in bed um, uh, upside down, actually, in the Trendillenburg position. And she remained like that for nearly five months. Um, and wow. uh, pressure off of her service to be inverted that way. And um, our daughter, Bella, was born five weeks early uh, and was healthy. Amazing. So she's in the middle of everybody yes. <clears throat> yes. and then and then a miracle baby that's right um you know the doctors wanted to tie her tubes said you can never carry again we can't do this it's too much risk and uh we said we're going to continue to trust in god and um 10 months later uh we found ourselves pregnant uh with our son stone again he was another preemie he came six weeks early born at 34 weeks, um, but did very well. And again, they wanted to tie her tubes and, and said, you just, I mean, this one was amazing that this happened, but you absolutely, absolutely cannot have another. And we just were not comfortable taking control of these blessings that were coming to us um, from Bo to Bella to Stone. And so we just continue to trust in God. And, um, but we never did get pregnant after that. Do you ever think that maybe the spirit of, of your first babies have come through in your children? Oh, they clearly have, Randy, okay. they clearly have. Uh, matter of fact, um, <clears throat> Nicholas's face was a much fuller face and um, that is our son, Bo. So the oldest, Nicholas and Bo have that connection. Um, you know, both sets of children were born boy, girl, boy. So we had that connection. Uh, when Bella was born, I mean, we took our, it took our breath away because she looked exactly like her sister, Mary. Um, Bella took her sister, Mary's name for her confirmation name in the church. And then um, our son, Stone, when he was born, had a, a thinner face, 
a little bit more chiseled like Peter's was. And um, others pointed out to us later that we didn't even see this connection. We never had the name Stone in mind. Um, but then uh, some nuns told us um, at the nursing home where my grandparents were that they loved how we named um, Stone after Peter, St. Peter being the rock of the church. Mm. And uh, so you played off of the rock of the church and named him Stone. And we thought, my goodness, yeah. we didn't see that, but that connection was clearly there. That came in. Okay. This is a beautiful, beautiful story. So what do you say to people who have had, you know, and, and I really like that you said earlier that you really um, have great compassion for people who don't have the, who didn't have the strong foundation you have and then have this piled on top of it. And actually most of my listening audience would be these people that did not have a strong foundation um, had lots of adversity in their young years, um, including myself. So then when these things get piled on, it's almost, you know, too much to bear. But, you know, and, and that was a situation for me. But what I found is <clears throat> the further, when I finally got knocked down as far as I could go, <laughs> there was only one way to go, and that was up. And so, you know, that's when I began to embrace a spiritual foundation of my own, not a religious one, but a spiritual foundation of my own that has guided me for the rest of my life. Um, adversity can bring that to you. Um, so what do you tell people who are going through something so tough right now and the future looks so dark for them? How do they hang on? Yeah, Randy, that's such an incredible question because, you know, when we need to dig deep, some of us have deeper reserves to dig into than others. And I acknowledge that. And that's why I have so much respect there. I, I have that respect because, you know, my, my dad's family as Italian immigrants coming in just literally food and survival uh, was a win. Mm-hmm. I think of the depths that my dad changed his life from. I, I don't know if I can fully comprehend it. it. It's too big of a hill to climb. But what I would tell the younger you is that you did climb that hill. So many out there have climbed the hill from elevations that were so low that they found the grit in them. They felt challenged, uh, they felt inspired and hopeful, and they found others that they could look to. You know, we all need others in our lives to create the hope for us that we might not feel in ourselves. And that hope comes to us in various forms. You know, I think that spirit is sent to us through different people, your voice to your audience, is exactly an example of what I'm talking about. And so what we need to do is kind of really open up and listen and be ready for it. So, you know, there's a theory that I love, it's called the red car theory. Are you familiar with that? No. So the red car theory basically says, um, you know, Randy, as you were 
you know, driving uh, today, how many red cars did you see? And, and you would not know that answer, right? I have no idea how many red cars I saw. But if I told you, Randy, I'll give you $50 for every red car that you see in a given day. And at the end of the day, I asked you, how many red cars did you see? You're, you'd be able to give me that number because you're alerted to it and you're aware. And that's really what we all need to do in our lives is dial into that awareness. We need to really be mindful to say, I'm gonna look for those red cars. In this scenario, it's I'm gonna look for inspiration. I'm gonna look for hope. I'm gonna look for people that can positively impact my life and lift me up. And I'm gonna let go of the people that are dragging me down. And it's only with that intentionality that you can move through the challenges of life and climb that ladder towards happiness and fulfillment and meeting your dreams if you're really focused on it. And so in the day when all those red cars were going by you and you weren't understanding the value of them, once you put intentionality to it and seeing the value, you'll, you'll go driving today and you're going to be blown away by how many red cars that you see. And that's what we got to get our minds to do and, and to really block out the, the negativity that others bring to us or our own past experiences bring. And I want to say one last thing about that to contextualize, contextualize it a bit um, in our situation, even with blessings of uh, loving parents and an and amazing friend network, was that it, when we were in darkness, we continued to look forward and take the next steps because we believed in hope. We believed in the power of hope and we were clinging to it, sometimes by the edge of our fingers, but we really believed in it. And as each step came, and the book explains far more in depth of what those were, it's natural to fall back and to lose hope. But there was just something within us telling us, look at all these blessings that are coming up, the kindness from others, the love from others, the empathy, um, the, the benefits in our marriage, the benefits in our careers, because we were now seeing things through a much better lens of empathy and kindness and respect towards others because we started to acknowledge maybe how fragile their life is just as fragile our life was. Wow, that's so profound. Um, you had miracles happen in your life and actually you could have looked at it as just maybe three but you actually had more miracles in your life than three, right? So it's really just the way that you look at things. People think miracles are supposed to be this big flash of light, you know, <laughs> and something just boom. But we all have miracles. It's a matter of looking into them, looking into your life and finding the beauty and the gratitude there. So what is, how do we, let me just, let's just say, how did you 
really grab on to gratitude um, throughout all of this? <clears throat> First, um, the most honest answer was it was a survival technique. Um, it, it, I really didn't feel an option or choice for anything but that. And it was rooted in the idea that at 28 years old, I felt too young to be jaded and to go through the rest of my life, another 50 years, 60 years, I felt there is no way that I'm going to allow this to define my life negatively. It's going to define my life for sure. But now maybe the control freak in me, Randy, I was saying, I'm going to determine how it impacts my life. And it's going to be one of blessings and gratitude. And I'm going to think of the time that I held them and my wife held them. And I saw the beautiful smile that she had um, and the joy that she felt. And I was going to soak that up and say, I need to allow this to be enough. Because all of us in life, we want more right? We want more love. We want more money. We want more family. We want more friends. We want more food. We, you know, whatever it might be, we want everything in abundance. And I started to play with the idea in my head of, could this be enough? Could our time together with the five of us, the first five of us, be enough to feel joy and gratitude? Or, Johnny, are you going to take the approach in life that I'll only feel joy and gratitude if I can be in my mid-80s and my kids in their 60s and I can say, okay, now I'm joyful. Now I'm grateful because I got it all. And so coming to terms with what is enough was probably the most life-changing gift that came. It's probably what allowed me to retire at the age of 50. Um, as opposed to when I'm at my top income earning, it, it never had more authority and um, benefits of financial reward to saying that's enough. And, you know, we and, and my enough is clearly not a level of enough by many, many standards, right? Because everyone wants more and more and more. I think that taught me at 28 the idea of what can be enough if we allow our minds to get around that. Thank you for that answer. That's going to help a lot of people. I think that's such a perfect answer and a perfect outlook to have. So I'm a big picture person. I always look at the, not what I'm seeing, but what could the bigger picture of it all be? And so, and I'm sure that you've seen this as well, those triplets, those three babies had to, this had to happen for you. Because this is what propelled your life forward in such a positive, grateful way, optimistic way, hopeful way. Um, that may not have happened had, you, had they not come to your life. So um, that was a gift to you, but it was also meant to be, right? 
It was, it was. And, you know, that's where gratitude happens because I can say that with a smile on my face. Mm -hmm. I can say that um, even before we went on to have three more kids, um, I can say it that as, as, as a family with six kids and our three kids knowing their older brothers and sister without ever meeting them, mm -hmm. but knowing them because of the stories that have been shared and their memory being kept alive. My gosh, I can't even imagine as a father denying that um, or ever saying, I wish that never happened. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a complex thought because there was so much pain in it. Mm -hmm. But I would never disrespect Nicholas, Mary, and Peter by wishing they never existed. Mm -hmm. So as to make my life easier. That would feel incredibly selfish to me. Um, and that just doesn't work with me how I want to parent. So for me, it's really about saying I understood and accepted um, the gift that they were for the time that it was. Mm -hmm. And if we could have gotten a year or two years or five years or 10 years, would we take it? Absolutely. But that wasn't meant to be. That wasn't meant to and be. it didn't happen. And so then it's just a matter of consciously choosing how am I going to move forward with the facts and circumstances that is my reality. And I'll share with you something that Dr. Fordyce, that Barb shared in a session that was really life-changing for me. I told her in one of the early sessions that um, I was not willing to let go of Nicholas, Mary, and Peter. Um, I said, Barb, I can't do it. I it doesn't feel natural to me as their dad to say, I've moved on and, and they're part of my past. And so I said, I won't let go of them. I'm just not gonna do it. And if people think that that is gonna make me um, dark or brooding or negative or whatever that might be, they're all going to have to figure out how to deal with that with me because I'm not letting go. Because the conventional words coming to me from, again, well-intentioned people was you have to let go. You have to let go. And, and to me, it sounded so counterintuitive. I thought, I, it's not even possible. Save your breath. I'm not letting go. So when I said that to Barb, she framed it beautifully. She said to us, Johnny, you do not have to let go of Nicholas, Mary, and Peter. You do not have to let them go. You can hold them in your memory, in your heart, and as part of your daily dialogue, your entire life. Mm -hmm. But what you do need to let go is the hopes and dreams that you had for them living with you physically in this life, mm -hmm. because that will never be. And once she gave me that permission to hold on and not let go and to keep them close in ways that I can celebrate them and celebrate them through my other kids and let our future kids get to know them, I felt like I can do this. I, that I can do. Letting go, I couldn't do. And so I think that applies to many life situations. A abusive relationship. That's why my book really isn't about fertility or even for that matter, 
the loss of a child. It's a, a story set to the theme of how to get through life when it's hard. So take an abusive relationship that, you know, there's clearly the relationship that you let go of that because you're not moving forward with it, but you don't let go of the lessons in it that can propel you to be stronger, to ensure that you're not repeating that pattern again. Right. There's parts of it that never let go. Hold on to that so that you can ensure that you make decisions for the future that serve you better while letting go of parts, holding on to other parts. Right. And that's what we had to do. Right. Um, you said something there that's that's really important and I want to emphasize it because um, when I work with people who have had abusive situations, they're coming out of abusive situations, whether they're having, <clears throat> having to let their family members go because it's toxic in their life or whether they're walking away from a relationship or a marriage, the thing that keeps people stuck is the dream of the future, what they were going to have, because we combine that with the, the love and affection we have for that person. There is a future that's very real to us. And letting that go is very difficult. But when we can, the rest becomes easier to navigate, easier to negotiate. That's a very big thing. The future is very real to us. What we imagine when you're pregnant with three babies, what you're, I mean, you're thinking about holidays and you're thinking about grandchildren and you're thinking about all that this is going to produce in your life. And that doesn't just dissipate because the children pass away. It's still there. And so that therapist was brilliant in saying that to you. And it sounds to me like she really released you from the constraints of that you know, what the, the torture, the mental torture you were going through. He did. It was completely releasing. It was empowering. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it also just helped reframe. That's what I love about cognitive behavioral therapy is and that power to reframe thoughts. It reframed a thought for me that in other relationships, it letting go of the dream for that, whether it's a friendship, mm -hmm. it's a professional dream, Mm -hmm. uh, that you might have had to let go of that without anger and resentment to let go of it by simply saying you know it's okay you go do what your business is you go do what your opportunities are um, and I wish you well on that I want no part of that and for us it won't be something that we'll do together mm -hmm. but that's okay exactly and I can walk away from that very lighthearted without anger and resentment because that anger and resentment only tears me up. And so when something doesn't work out and I haven't had a lot of professional relationships not work out, but it, and for that matter, personal relationships, but in the cases where it has happened, that's absolutely okay. No one has to live by my rules. I don't set the universal rules for relationships professional or personal. So they're entitled to play out the way that they feel works for them, aligns with their values and character, and is something that they can live with. If I'm not okay with that, it doesn't make them wrong and me right. It just makes our views different and let that go. 
let it go. That dream is not going to happen with us together. And it's really freeing to feel that way. Mm -hmm. And you live without so much resentment. Exactly. I mean, I've had to let my parents go. Um, but I don't do it with hate, malice, anger, any of that. I'm like, go live your life, you know, go live your life however you want to. Um, it just complicates me, my life when you're in it, but feel free to live it, you know, and, and, and that's, so I really understand that because that's what I've had to do in order to be able to move forward in my life is to let these things go. And so, and then you learn that you really have very little control over life and that you, the best way to do this is to just ride the waves. Just let the flow take you where it'll take you with no expectation, just hope, like you say, um, and gratitude. And uh, life is going to take us in the right places no matter what we do. That's right. So we That's all right. we can do is get in the way of it or we can allow it. And your story is so such a beautiful example of this. And, you know, you have so much to share with other people as a result of what you learned and you're sharing it you know through this book and i i do you have a website where people can go to for other information or other i do it's actually right above me there encourage33.com okay or um it's johnnyserpilla.com okay and what they will people find when they get there and so you'll find really all that i do um in, in all my professional endeavors, uh, there is all the press um, that I've been, you know, so grateful for uh, a recent USA Today article. Um, so there's, uh, you know, a lot of um, press that's been done on my professional life as well as the personal life. Uh, there are uh, podcasts, many of them that will be done. This one will be on there uh, soon. And um, and then just uh, philosophies that I have. Um, there's some some speaking engagements that are on there that just give some insight to, you know, a little bit of how I see things and and what works for me with a very complicated mind. Again, a, as a man with anxiety, um, you know, I, there's a lot that goes on inside my head, um, oftentimes to my detriment. And so I really have learned what I have to do in controlling my thinking. Mm -hmm. I've had to learn to not believe everything that I think, <laughs> which is something that I struggle with almost daily. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's important for people to know that visit the site or read the book that I haven't figured it all out. I continue to remain on the journey of figuring it out and and accepting myself as I grow and learn and change um, to give myself graces in some time and some periods and other periods just say, you know, Johnny, cut it out. That, that is just enough. Those thoughts are ridiculous. You're carrying something around that you got to let go. And uh, I'm getting a little frustrated that you're not letting it go. And so, you know, sometimes I can be hard on myself to say just Everybody. enough. Everybody. Yeah. I'm tired of you, Johnny. It's, too many thoughts, too many racing thoughts that you're not finding calm through the meditation practices that you love, through prayer that you love, through practicing gratitude. You have all box breathing. You have all these great techniques available to you. And you just went down a rabbit hole for 30 minutes. 
and completely forgot all of that. And then I say, okay, I just remembered them now. So now I'm going to do them and, and, and just say, you know, get there faster next time. Right. You know, I tell people you're going to have bleed throughs. There's going to be times where this stuff, you know, you can go for a period of time and, and be just fine, but you're going to have bleed throughs. It's not about focusing on those bleed throughs and just saying, oh, it's here again. Those are meant for you to then reach into your tool bag and say, okay, I have the tools to move past this. Um, it's just kind of a reminder that you need to dig in and get those tools back out. Um, everybody has it. Everybody does. But we, our mind, boy, our minds can really tell us some awful things. And <laughs> um, it's, it's the thing that hurts us the most is what we say to ourselves. So right. you've, um, and, and of course you're not done. I feel like when we're done, that's when we die. I mean, when we got no more to learn here, okay, when we finished it, go, you know, and I think I'm going to be around for a long time because I think I got a lot more to learn, <laughs> but we'll see, we'll see, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. And your babies, their life, that's the, that's what their purpose was for that very right. short period of time. That's what they were meant to be. And then they weren't meant to be here anymore although they did come through in your children. So Johnny, beautiful, beautiful um, conversation. I really, I really love speaking with you. Uh, I love your philosophies and um, I love your story. I think it's, it can be so impactful to people who are going through hard things and just say, you know what, it'll be okay. Life is hard, but I'll be okay. Um, and your book is available through the usual Amazon and through your website and all those things. All online channels on my website, um, all those things. I just want to thank you, Randy, um, for giving me an opportunity to spotlight something that was so important to me in this book and, and really working to help people um, because I just simply do believe that, that life is hard and and the content that you put out is meaningful and impactful and is hitting a wide ranging audience. And so I just want to thank you for all that you're doing to help people. Oh, thank you for that acknowledgement, Johnny. I, I really do appreciate that. I feel, um, you know, I just, I feel uh, I'm being guided here in this connection with you. I feel it. So um, this was really, really powerful. Uh, and I wish you a wonderful day and enjoy those beautiful children. Wow, gorgeous family. You should just, you are so blessed. Thank you so much. I feel that way. All right. Well, have a wonderful day. You as well. Thank you.